Why don't you read for us from the prophecies you are studying, dear? Lucy said to her husband, William. The year was 1818. William Miller, a Christian farmer in New York State, had been studying the prophecies of the book of Daniel. And one verse kept nagging at him. He would sometimes stay up all night trying to decode it. I suppose I can do that. Children, hear this. Daniel 8, chapter 14. Then I heard of Holy One speaking, and another Holy One said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. That's a long time to wait in Daniel's day, his wife Lucy said looking over at her children with a soft smile. But it isn't just in Daniel's time, I don't think, William responded, the tone of his voice showing excitement rising. This is a prophecy, so it must be referring to a later time in history. William turned his creaky wooden chair back toward his hardwood desk, grabbed a fountain pen covered in ink stains, and started writing out his thoughts. If the sanctuary is referring to the earth. Yeah, if the sanctuary refers to the earth, then the cleansing must be the cleansing of the earth at the second coming of Christ. If each day represents one year. William, what is it? Christ is coming. Yes, he is. Someday he'll come to take us home. No, you don't understand, Lucy. William responded while almost jumping out of his chair. If the 2300 days in Daniel are actually 2300 years and the time period begins in 457 BC, then 1843, we're going home. Lucy stared at her husband, eyes big. She almost dropped the teacup and saucer on the floor. That's just a few years from now. Are you sure? I am as sure as I can be. Just a few more years, and he is coming to cleanse the earth and take us all home. William Miller is outside with his wife Lucy, waiting for Jesus to come. He spent the last couple of years preaching the message of the Second Coming, calling any Christian from any denomination and anyone who wasn't a believer to repentance. In these last couple of years, he also discovered that the year zero shouldn't be accounted for in his calculations, which is why it's now 1844 instead of 1843 that he is awaiting Jesus' second coming. Are you ready, Lucy? Ready to meet our Lord today? I think so. I just hope that others are ready too. William, thank you for telling the world about Jesus' return. I know that many didn't listen, but we did our best. I wasn't qualified, but I know that I was called, Lucy. I just wish that we had more time to tell everyone. 
Those last couple of years of warning people just don't seem like enough. <sighs> it's getting cold outside, William. There's only a couple of hours left until midnight. Maybe Jesus will come closer to the end of this day. a drink on William Miller and this Jesus coming. <laughs> I'll have one. <laughs> it's crowded in a local pub of Lowhampton, New York. So many people who William Miller preached to, but never accepted the message, are now all gathered together, scoffing at Miller and his words of warning about the second coming. The reverberating sound of the town's clock striking midnight all of a sudden makes the message of the preacher sink in. Would Jesus come now in the very last second of this day? like the good Lord Jesus decided not to join us for a drink tonight. Next round's on the house. William, Lucy said to her husband, eyes hot with tears. He didn't come for us. We're not going home. Danique Tersmet, and you are listening to the Little Light Studios podcast, a show in which we seek to answer your most challenging Bible questions. William Miller loved to study the prophecies of the book of Daniel specifically the so-called 2300 days prophecy or 2300 years prophecy of chapters 8 and 9 and believed that Jesus would come again in 1844. For many years he preached the message gaining quite the following of Christians from all kinds of denominations. They were also known as the Millerite movement. But on that dark October day midnight struck and Jesus hadn't returned. Many left the faith, disappointed in Christianity and wanting nothing to do with it anymore. But a small remnant stuck together and continued to study the prophecies despite the ridicule from other people. They wanted to know what error they had made in their studies. 
God blessed them for their efforts and faithfulness and showed them what the cleansing of the sanctuary did actually mean and how important it was to their salvation then and ours today. Keith Detweiler is one of Little Light Studios speakers, the head elder at a small Chattanooga, Tennessee church, and a graduate theology student. Keith is known to spend quite a bit of time studying the scriptures, especially when it comes to the sanctuary. And that is why we're diving into this topic with him today. The Old Testament tabernacle was a living lesson book. We don't often think of it that way, but it was really this very visual teaching tool for Israel. It was also a way for God to come as near to his people as physically possible. And more importantly than that, it was a continual reminder of sin and salvation. And I think the Bible really says it best in Psalm 77, 13. It says, your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great as our God? So the tabernacle, to kind of explain it for people who are maybe not that familiar with the Bible, was, I think it first came around in in the desert, right? After yeah. they left Egypt. Yeah, it was a portable building. Right. They set it up and, you know, took it down and brought it with them wherever they went. It was made of a large variety of materials. You know, they had linen cloth and they had uh, poles and they had, you know, gold woven into curtains and, you know, different colored fabrics. And uh, I've read about the skins that they have on the top of it. And I just think it serves to be more like waterproof. Different translations will read differently. So I don't want to say exactly what they may be. It, might, it could confuse people. I think one one place I've read that it says badger skins and at other places it says like porpoises and it's like, you know, whatever it was. It, it, it was, was an a, animal skin. It was an animal yeah. skin. And I think it was one that probably was likely designed to keep out water or the elements. Mm -hmm. um, and there were, it wasn't just the only thing there. There were multiple animal skins covering uh, the top of the roof of the tabernacle. So, yeah, it was this portable building that they took with them wherever they went, whenever their camp was set up. You could say in a very literal way, it was the center of their camp because they all, all the different tribes encamped around it. So here's this building in the middle of your entire operation. So um, it was basically like a place of worship, right? They, it was. They built it was it. a place of worship. Yeah. But it was, it was more than that. Mm -hmm. It was a place where, um, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but it was a place where you brought your sacrifices and you, you have to wonder you know, we don't live in a day and age where people necessarily know if you sinned. But this was a time and place and set up in a way that if you sinned, people can see all around the camp. You have to take this lamb from wherever your flock is and bring it to the center of the camp. And everybody's watching you and they know, oh, wow. <laughs> That guy's going to the temple to sacrifice that lamb to confess his sin. He sinned. So there's this sense of, you might say, shame or guilt that is 
upon you that you have to endure as everybody's watching you because they know right. why you're going there. Now, they may not know the exact reason. So they didn't have like different animals for different types of sin. No, and- <laughs> no, 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 no. no. Yeah. But, but, but you sinned and everybody knew it that was watching. You know, it could easily be seen. You weren't hiding it because there was nothing really – really closely around the tabernacle. All the all the encamps were around it, but there was some space between the tabernacle and the people. And I don't remember what that exact distance was, but there was some space. So you're going out into this open area and there you are, you and your lamb, and everybody knows why you're going. So it's kind of awkward. So the idea of animal sacrifices goes way back to like Way back. Genesis, right? Like it right does. after the fall, Adam and Eve. Yes, well, why, it goes. Why, did, why are they doing this? Why are now, we not doing this today? You might you might wonder, well, how do we know it goes back that far? Uh-huh. You know, in Genesis 3.15, we have this prophecy. And the prophecy is about the seed that will come, that will crush the head of the serpent. It's shortly after that. I think it's already in Genesis 4 where it starts talking about Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel are bringing their sacrifices, right? And what are they bringing for sacrifice? You know, we, we find out one brings his fruits and vegetables, you know, what he had, had gotten from the ground. And the, the other one, Abel, brings the acceptable sacrifice. He brought a lamb. And the other clue that we have is when Adam and Eve sinned, before or as God is banishing them from the garden, he gives them some new clothes. And these clothes are made out of animal skins. Mm-hmm. Does it say what animal skin or just says, I mean, what kind of animal or just says animal skin? You know, it would be best if we actually looked let's it up. Let's look it up. Yeah, let's so do let's it. So let's go to Genesis chapter 3 because we don't want to leave people hanging or, or leave them guessing. Right. So I'm going to be looking at Genesis 3 from the New King James Version. And I would imagine in in most versions, it's going to be something very similar. But it says... Which verse is this in chapter 3? In verse 21 21, of chapter 3, it says, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Okay. So So it's not saying what animal. Yeah. But we have some clues in the Bible. One of those clues comes in Leviticus, which we'll actually get to this a little bit later. Um. You could say even the New Testament alludes to this. In Hebrews, it says, you know, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Mm -hmm. Well, atonement had to be made for their sin. You know, this this has been from the the very beginning. So what was used? Mm. You know, where did did we get the skins? And the idea is that either God had them or God himself sacrificed— on an altar, these animals to atone for their sins, you know, how exactly that works. I mean, it, se- it seems odd that that God would do such a thing or have them do such a thing. Right. But yeah, there was a sacrifice made. Blood had to be shed to atone for the sins. And that all that was really doing was pointing to something in the future that we're going to take a look at. Yeah. As this podcast develops. <laughs> I'm excited to get to that part because that's the best part of all of this. It, it really is. Um, so so we're at the tabernacle, right? We know that it's a tent that the Israelites, that God commanded the Israelites to set up mm-hmm. um, in uh, in the desert after they left Egypt, were on the way to Canaan, the promised land. 
We know that there were sacrifices they had to make with animals um, to atone for their sin. What else do we know about this tabernacle? What's going on in there? Yeah, so there's, this place has a bunch of unusual furniture. It's not the same kind of furniture that you would put in your house, per se. You right. know? It's, it's very different furniture. So let's just start from the very beginning. You know, as you're leading your lamb to this this setup, you know, it's it's not not the entire thing is a building. There's a building inside of it. So outside is a is a, what we call the courtyard. Okay. So you go to the sanctuary, and there's one entrance. Okay. okay. This one entrance, even that alone, is alluding to the gospel. Okay. It says in John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So just as there's only one entry into the sanctuary, there's only one way to salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. Amen. So once you get past the entrance, you're going to encounter your first piece of furniture, and that is the altar of sacrifice or the altar of burnt offerings. And it was here that the confession of the sin was made. The, the individual that brought the animal would lay their hand on the head of the animal. They would confess their sins. And then they would have to perform this act that would be very foreign to us. They would have to slit the animal's right. throat. And, you know, the priest is there to collect the blood of the animal as it's dying. So I, I can imagine that. If you actually, if today we had to sacrifice an animal for every single sin that we committed, we'd be much more understanding of the depth of sin, I think. I think we would. And in the state that the world is in now, we'd have to have a lot of sheep. <laughs> yeah, you that's know, true. <laughs> a lot of a lot of lambs. There wouldn't be any leftover. <laughs> we all go vegetarian. <laughs> yeah. So the lamb was slain. And here this is also a picture of the gospel because uh, as John put it in John, or yeah, as John put it in John one twenty nine, um, that's John the the dis, the disciple, but he's echoing something that John the Baptist had said, mm-hmm. and John the Baptist said, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin yeah. of the world," and so they are learning. It's this giant lesson book, right? That they are seeing these things happen and they're thinking about them and what do they mean and the priests of course are watching all of this and the priests are teaching the people about what these things are to mean at least they're supposed to maybe that didn't always happen depending on the time that israel was in because there were times of reformation and there were times of apostasy there were times where things were you know corrupt and and skewed or the book of the law was lost and you know, so it depends on probably what time period you live in, who's the leader, who's the priest, what's going on in mm-hmm. Israel, whether you're really being properly educated or not. Mm-hmm. But I believe this is the idea, is that <clears throat> if you're a thinking person, you're wondering, why are we doing this? What does all this mean? And of course, the further we get along in time, you know, we add the New Testament and we have all these things that point back and explain a lot of these things. But I, but I believe even in the Old Testament, they had the explanations. They basically had the gospel. They did. Is what you're saying. Yeah. They did. So after the altar of sacrifice or burnt offerings, you would encounter another piece of furniture. And that was the laver. So we're still in the outer court right now. We're still in the outer courtyard. Yeah. And this is where the priest washed the 
the blood. Of course, he had to take this blood and he had to apply it to the altar of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think he put it on his thumb, like his right thumb and his right toe and his right earlobe. And he put it on the... um, the horns of the altar. He applied the blood. And of course, you know, there's parts of the animal that had to be separated out, like the fat from the organs and things like that. And they and, would, and all of that has a specific meaning, right? It does. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not we're not gonna get all, yeah. all that right now, but he burned certain parts of the animal there on the altar okay. of sacrifice. Then he has to wash. Okay, so now he's at the labor. He's got blood on him. Okay, this is the priest, and he has to wash the blood from his hands and feet and things. And and this is a cleansing act, right? That's that's pretty universal. We know world over, different cultures, you know, you wash with water. It's it's clean. You become clean. Mm-hmm. It's that's why we take showers every here. day. Yeah, we take showers every mm-hmm. day. At least we hope we do, right? <laughs> yeah. So this is a cleansing act. But it, it really is looking to something else that happens uh, for the Christian And that is baptism, right? When you are baptized, you are washed from your sins. That's Mm -hmm. what the Bible says, you know. Um, If I remember remembering right, there's a text in Acts chapter 3 that I'd like to look at. Acts chapter 3, and I think it's 19. It says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You know, when you get cleaned, when you get washed, it's refreshing, mm-hmm. right? So this is a, this is an act where it's, it's like washing your sins away, as the song says, you know, wash all my sins away. Uh-huh. So here the priest is being, he's washing, he's being cleansed. And for the Christian, this is the experience of baptism. In Acts twenty two sixteen, the Bible says, and now why are you waiting? Arise be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. It's amazing that there's so many connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament and that this structure that some people might read about and think it's very insignificant has significance to our lives today in that sense. Yeah, it has a huge impact in the New Testament. And most of the New Testament, a good portion of it, it's either a third or two thirds, something like that, is actually quoting from the Old Testament or mm-hmm. alluding to the Old Testament. There's there's not necessarily a lot of quote unquote new ideas. Yeah. Yeah. They're just ideas that are maybe put in a new light or to help people better understand or to spell it out more or what have you. Okay. So we've encountered the altar of sacrifice. The priest has got blood on him. He goes to wash that off the labor. He's still in the outer courtyard. Now it's time to transition into the sanctuary. Into the actual building Into this actual building that's in the middle of this, you know, courtyard area. In the middle of all the Israelites. In the middle of all the Israelite camp. Yeah, it's not in the middle of the courtyard per se. It's kind of toward toward the back. But so you have to go through these curtains, right? And... Once you get through the curtains, there's this place is blocked off. It's not like there's light in here, okay? Okay, so it's very dark. It, it would be dark. Now, there yeah. is light, but but we're not allowing external light sources, okay? Gotcha. So it's going to be a different uh, feel than you had outside in the sun. So you're going in and then you, you know, it's, light has been cut off. Now, there is light, and we'll get to that. But first, now we're going to talk about what you would have 
if you're a priest on the right-hand side as you're walking in. And that is the table of showbread, or also known as the bread of his presence. Okay. So you go past this curtain. There's a table on the right, and it has two stacks of loaves of bread. There's 12 uh, loaves, if you will. It was a flat bread. Um, so where they like were stacked. not leavened, no yeast is what one, you mean. Yeah, yeah, one on the other. Okay. These are um, to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh-huh. And it's replaced once a week. It's only put there on the Sabbath day. So every Sabbath day, they brought fresh bread. I, I just find that really interesting because the Israelites were told not to collect manna on the Sabbath day, which is kind of like a bread. But then here, they are putting it out on the Sabbath day. They are putting it out on the Sabbath day. Is there day. any significance to that? or now, now, this bread put out on the Sabbath day... Um, isn't immediately eaten. And, okay. and this this is actually not bread for for common people. It wasn't just to be distributed all over Israel for people to uh-huh. eat. But there is some significance here. Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Now, what you just said is you, you talked about the manna, right? Mm, Where did the yeah. manna come de- from? It came, it came down from heaven, from heaven literally. right? Literally. I always thought of that being symbolic of Jesus. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, this is kind of a side note, but manna has a very unique translation. It's, it's a word, and the word means, what is it? So... That, that's it. It's what, just, it's a oh, question. Oh, I thought you were asking me the question, but that's actually what it means. Then. That's the I was meaning. Like, Wait, is, what, what is it? <laughs> and so when the Israelites went to pick it up in the desert, they had this manna and that was their reaction. They're like, what is it? <laughs> we don't even know what this is. So I just call it, what is it? <laughs> yeah. And you know what's fascinating is I find people have the same reaction to Jesus when he starts showing up in mm, Israel. Because he was so different. He was so different. Mm. They started asking questions like, who is this guy? I thought he was the carpenter's son. How does he know these letters? Like, right. they're not sure what to do with Jesus. And so it's like they're metaphorically asking the same question, like, what is he? Yeah. Like, who yeah. is it? Yeah. Where what does is he come it? from? Yeah, that's cool. So here, this, this bread is really representing Jesus. And he's making that connection in, in, in um, John chapter 6. And so he says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have the bread in the sanctuary. You have Jesus talking about the bread. What, what is bread for? It's to fill you up. It's to feed you, to keep you alive. Exactly. And, and pretty much, again, the world over, just like water has to do with cleansing, bread is for eating. Mm-hmm. It's to sustain life. Yeah. It's a universal, you know, almost every culture has a bread of some kind That's or another. That's so true. It might be flat. It might be unleavened. It might be leavened. It might be very puffy. It might be, there's all kinds of forms that it comes in, but all of these different cultures have some kind of bread, almost all of them. Mm, yeah. And so bread is for sustaining our life. And so we see in the sanctuary, okay, there's bread. We know that to sustain us in what way? Here's how. There's a lot of Christians that know this verse. It comes from Matthew 4, 4. Jesus is in the wilderness. He's being tempted by Satan. And his first rebuttal 
to Satan is when he says, man shall not live by bread alone. Because Satan had told him, well, you know, make these stones into bread. He says, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I recently read that verse, and I actually discovered that that is also an Old Testament reference. And I can't remember exactly which verse okay. it was, but it was, yeah, it was in the Old Testament as well. Yes. Somewhere. Maybe Deuteronomy, It is like Deuteronomy okay, because okay. Jesus, every time he is um, refuting Satan, every text that he quotes is from Deuteronomy. Okay. So, yeah. And Deuteronomy is the book of the law. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. So, he quotes, this is in Matthew 4.4, 4, just a bit of trivia for you. It's also in Luke 4, 4, so it's kind of easy to remember. <laughs> same text, and they're in the same chapter and verse, but different books. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's making this point, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So what is to sustain us? God's word. So when you see those loaves in the sanctuary, this is to represent God's word. That's what gives us life, spiritual life. This is what sustains us, right? Right, right. God's word has creative power. In that creative power is life. Yeah, I mean, we some people know about the dark ages that happened where the word of God wasn't as prevalent and where the Catholic Church said, well, only the priests are allowed to teach it. It only came in Latin, where a lot of the reformers, out of which the Protestant Church came, a lot of reformers, including Martin Luther, the Waldenses, they gave—well, Martin Luther didn't, but the, the other Waldenses, for example, gave their lives— for the word of God. They, they they knew about this concept and understood it so well, they would rather lay down their lives than not have the word of God for them or for anybody in the future. Yeah. So that really shows, like you said, like these people said, I'd rather die than have not have the word of God. I, I, I value the word of God over even real food, you know. Jesus said in the Gospels, he said, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and, and they are life. life. That's right. Yeah. I, I think we could make the case from the Bible, not that we actually see this happening, but I think that we can make the case from the Bible very strongly that you don't need food if you have God's word. Mm. And what I mean by that is not that we're not human beings and our systems don't run right. on nourishment, but... God's word has such strong creative power. He can sustain you even if you have no food. Which is what we see with Jesus in the 40 days in the desert. Yeah, there's not a lot of people that, that go yeah. through that. But, yeah. but God has the creative power to sustain you even if you don't put food in your body. Mm-hmm. I really believe that's what he's getting at. I mean, he spoke the worlds into existence. He you know, he spoke and so many things just happened. So by God's word, God's word can sustain your life. If God wants you to live, all he has to do is speak it into existence. He doesn't necessarily have to give you a piece of bread mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for you to subsist on. He can say, no, you can exist because I say you can exist. Amen. And that's, yeah. that's it. Because he I can mean, do anything. He can do anything. Yeah. God's word is powerful. So that was the piece of furniture on the right. Yeah, now now there's two other articles in there, two Mm -hmm. other pieces of furniture. On the left, we'll go with that one, is what we call the seven-branch candlestick. So this is the source of light in this room. Okay. okay? And 
Uh, it's fueled by oil. So you have uh, um, this candle and on each, you know, on you know, it has like a center post and then from each of the center posts out go three other posts on each side up around it and it, you know, they all shine. It's kind of like the Jewish candle, the right? Menorah. That you see, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, that, that gives that's, you a visual. As far as we know, yeah, that's yeah. probably what it looked like. Okay. I mean, I don't know that we have one from the Old Testament because I think it was all destroyed. Right, right. I yeah. think that's what we understand that it looked like. And of course, there's a lot more details to the, you know, like it had, you know, almond flowers and yeah. stuff around yeah, it. Yeah, there's so much symbolism in this this tabernacle system. But here's this light source. And, the, and what's fascinating about this light source is the priests were always to keep this burning. That light was to never go out. Okay. So it's fueled by oil. And it's continually burning. Now, here's what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12. He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So, again, we're just seeing the gospel over and over and over again in each one of these articles of furniture. They're all pointing to one thing, and that's Jesus. The different aspects of his ministry, the different things that he does— so, this light is a guide, but how does it operate? Well, like I said, these lamps were continually kept burning by oil, and oil is a common representation of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. It's the Spirit that guides us. It's the Spirit, if you look in John chapter 16, the Spirit has like a threefold, um, what word do I want to use? Like a threefold. Like characteristics? Um, no, it's not characteristic. Um, it's like a function. Yeah, function. Say. It's also thinking okay. too. Yeah. It convicts us of sin, mm-hmm. of righteousness, and the judgment to come. Mm-hmm. Okay. We know that from John 16. So that same spirit is what causes us as well when it, when it fills us, causes us to be the light of the world. That's what Jesus called us. He said, you are the light of the world, referring to the people that we're listening to, so that we can witness to those around us. Right. So basically, Jesus is the light. And as he comes into our hearts, when we accept him, then we share then that we, light. Yep. It, it's, it's a really beautiful analogy to think about that somebody who's living in sin is living in, in kind of like that dark room in the, in the in the tabernacle. But as soon as... They allow Jesus into their hearts. That just lights up. Mm-hmm. Like it completely changes your perspective on life, on yourself and other people, even understanding that there's a future life ahead of you. It's, yeah. it's amazing. It's so beautiful. Yeah, it is. Jesus says of himself, or the Bible says of Jesus, in him is light and there is no darkness at all. Mm-hmm. You yeah. Know, so Jesus is just pure. He's pure light, if you will. That's of course, ph- phenomenal. The Bible also, you know, we could look at a couple other texts from the Psalms. Um, Psalm 119, it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Very right? popular verse. Yep. So the Bible is also a light that guides us. There's there's a multiple things here um, that the light can essentially represent in the Christian experience. There's one more piece of furniture in uh-huh. here. Okay. This is the altar of incense. It's what it's called. Okay. And 
This in relation to the entrance is like the exact opposite. So if you enter, it's on the far side. You'd be looking at it, you know, if you were facing forward. You're, you're talking about in. if you were walking into the courtyard? And you're walking, no, you're walking into the holy place. Gotcha. It would be on the opposite side of the room. So on the right, you have the table of showbread. On the left, you have the candlestick. And opposite you is going to be the altar of incense. Okay, so so there's a courtyard. Then there's the second room that we're talking about right now, which mm-hmm. is called the holy place. And yep. then there's a third room that is the most holy place. But we haven't got there yet. Right, yeah. yeah. So the altar of incense is still in the holy place. Okay. But it's next to the most holy place. It's very nearby. Okay. Okay, so... This is a different kind of altar, though. This is not the altar where animals are being sacrificed onto. Um, This is an altar where incense is burning all the time, right? And then if I remember right, as a special incense. The recipe, I think, was not to be used for anything else. Mm -hmm. Not for, like, your personal perfume or something like that. Yeah, it's a very specific you know, recipe just for the sanctuary. Now, the book of Revelation actually gives us some clues here about the incense. You're like, what? Okay, I get the light and I get the bread. Those are pretty obvious. Jesus spoke about those. But incense, like not seeing Jesus and incense, like just immediately. So right. what's that all about? Well, Revelation 8, 3, and 4 tells us that the incense, which ascended in the earthly sanctuary, was a symbol of the prayers of God's people on earth ascending to the heavenly sanctuary. Okay. So incense is representative of prayer. Okay. Okay. And like all the other elements so far, we can see Jesus in this one too. How, how come? How do you see Jesus in this? That Jesus continually prays to God? Is that what it means? Or that... Yeah, so Romans 8, 27 tells us that Jesus is pleading each of our cases in heaven. So he is offering up a prayer, you might say, to God on our behalf. Okay. And essentially what this means is he is pointing to the merits of his blood that was shed and pleading with the Father and saying, I know they deserve this. But please accept my blood on their behalf. I've shed my blood. It's a perfect sacrifice. Will you accept my blood in place of their sin to preserve their life? So this is the most holy place. Oh, sorry. No, this was the holy place. Yeah, we're still in the holy place. Yeah. Now, after this comes the most holy place, which I understand is like this... I mean, it says in the name, it's an extremely holy place where God's presence is. He abides there and only the high priest is allowed to enter once a year. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, that was, it's Yom Kippur Yom on Kippur, the Jewish calendar. Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement. So this is, like you said, it's, it's the most sacred compartment in the sanctuary. To the point where if you were not in there on the right day or did something wrong on the service, the holy, the high priest would die in God's yeah, presence. Yeah, so, you know, what they actually used to do is they used to tie a rope to his leg. With bells, right? So they could hear him. Well, the bells would allow them to know he was still moving around. Yeah. They could yeah. hear him. 
But the rope was to so that him. if he died, yeah. they can still get him out. Yeah, and, and <laughs> they don't want him rotting in the, <laughs> yeah, the most that. holy place. <laughs> um, so the most holy places is unique in several ways. Uh, first of all, the dimensions of the room are an exact cube. Okay. Uh huh. So it's a cube. The rest of the sanctuary is essentially twice as big at least in length. Okay. So it, it represents one third of the entire sanctuary. The, the most holy place. The most holy okay. place does. But it's a cube. So the other thing that's unique is once you get into here, there is only one article of furniture. Okay, just just a box. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> now, it's a very expensive box. It's, <laughs> it's overlaid in gold. So it's it looks very magnificent in I I should say the box has a couple of components the box has a lid okay so it's designed so that you could put something inside of it it wasn't just a solid piece of metal you could you could put things inside of it so the lid was called the mercy seat and on the lid there were two angels okay and not like beings, like but like statues, right? Yeah, they were representations yeah, of angels. Exactly. They weren't literal angels. So we know, what's interesting about this is we know that this is actually a picture of God's throne because God is flanked by two cherubim. Which are um, angels meant to represent to guard, right? To guard over yeah, they're, they're something. Angels with speci- special designation, they are always in the presence of God. So, um, one on the right and one on the left. And so, in the middle would be God's throne. And this is where the what's called the Shekinah glory would reside. It was the visible, you might say, presence of God. They actually saw, like, a light? A bright light. Yeah, okay. Yeah. They didn't see God, like, face to face. Like, they couldn't see a face or a form or anything like that. They just saw... A bright light. And so real quick, what does Shekinah mean? Now, I should say they. Really, that was just the high priest right. once a year. Okay. It wasn't like everybody got tickets to go in and <laughs> check it out. Yeah. So, yeah, really bright light. The They know that because the scriptures tell them, yes, there is that. But, you know, the high priest could testify to the fact that, yeah, I saw a bright light. It was there, you know, Shekinah glory. Um, so now the box has contents. There's three things in the box, okay. So wh- what do you what do you put in this thing? You know, <laughs> <laughs> right? In the what most you, holy you, place in God's what do you presence. Put in the most holy place. <laughs> you know, it's it's almost like you're you're moving closer to the center of a target, right? Mm. You're going further in. Now you're you know, you're in the inmost room. Now there's a box. Now you're going inside the box. Like, okay, what's in there? What's so important, right? There are three items in the box, and. I like to describe them all as articles of remembrance. There was a reason they were all put there. Okay. So the three things are Aaron's rod that budded. And this helped the Israelites remember to respect God's choice of leadership among them. Real quick, can we share with the people where exactly they can read that story again? So you can find that in Numbers 17. And basically the story goes something like this. There was a power struggle in Israel and um, 
God decided, okay, I'm going to put this to the test. There's these group of men who think they should be in leadership in Israel, and I'm going to show them who the true leader is. And God's um, sign was that the one who's rod budded. Mm-hmm. Basically, flowers grew. Yeah, flowers mm-hmm. on it. Um, that was the one that was meant to be high priest. So, yeah, without getting into all the nitty-gritty yeah. details of the story, yeah. that's that's kind of the gist of it. So this helped them remember God is the one that chose for them. And, yeah, maybe the people were dissatisfied, but God had a specific reason for choosing Aaron to be the high priest. And we can trust God in his choice. You choices. can trust God's choice. Yeah. Exactly. Now, the next thing in there is a bowl of manna. We touched on the manna earlier. Now, why were they to keep the bowl of manna? So, you know, here you there's this food that you get. You've been eating it for 40 years. And then as they travel around the desert, they're going to preserve some. Now, this is a miracle. Because the manna, if it was left out, melted. Every single day. Every day. Yeah. And if it was left overnight, you know, like you tried to collect too much, it spoiled. Yeah. So here they have a bowl of manna, you know, that's essentially perfectly preserved for many generations, mm-hmm. right? So they have the bowl of manna that helped them remember God's provision because when they were in the wilderness, they complained about hunger. They complained about thirst. So to provide for their hunger, God read down the manna six days a week. On the sixth day, they would have to gather twice as much. And then they would have enough for the Sabbath. And this is actually the first time, this is in Exodus 16, that they are learning about the Sabbath for, you could say, that group of people. The Sabbath is mentioned prior. Mm -hmm. But you have to remember, the Israelites had spent 400 years in Egypt observing. Probably were not keeping the Sabbath. There's probably a lot of things they weren't doing. (laughs) Yeah, They were heavily influenced by another culture for 400 years. There's a lot that gets lost along the way if you can't, you know, worship and, you know, follow after God as as he desires. So they were learning a lot of things. And so one of the first things he introduced them to was the Sabbath. Now, that bowl of manna was to help them remember God's provision. I will provide for you. I can provide you. I can take care of you, you know. So remember that. And thinking of it like both physically and spiritually since it represents the word of God. Amen. Now, there's one other thing, and this is the largest article, probably the heaviest article in the box, and that is the Ten Commandments. Two tables of stone. Um, The original tables were broken. Mm -hmm. By Moses. By Moses. And so, you know, essentially after that, God told him, go get your own rocks. And so he had to hew out his own tables of stone. And then God said, okay. Now, I will write them again. God didn't trust a man to write them. He wrote them both with his own finger. So here you have two tables of stone that have God's handwriting on them, essentially. Now, what's interesting about this, and the reason I call this also one of the articles of remembrance, is yes, they were to remember the law, but even one of the laws Starts with the word remember. It's the fourth commandment. And that's the fourth remember commandment. Remember the Sabbath. That's yeah, right. remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So that's what's in the box. And 
you know, as you're kind of honing in on what is important to God, you're seeing these are the things that his um, government is based on. You know, you could call it the foundation of his throne because the mercy seat is essentially a picture of his throne. Well, what's underneath a foundation, right? So it's like the foundation of his government. This is how God operates. Yeah, that's such know? a beautiful picture of God, his character. It, it is. And so God operates as the one who has the right to make final decisions. He operates as the one who provides for everything that we need. And he operates as the one who has a system of rules that explain who he is and who he wants us to be. And it seems like a system of judgment yet of righteousness, like of... Yes, and one of mercy. Because what is the lid called? It's the mercy seat. The mercy seat, that's right. Notice the mercy seat is above. You might say it covers, Yeah, you know, all these things. So God is, it's, it's, we're very fortunate we're not God. <laughs> yeah. We, we have a hard time finding this balance between justice and mercy, but God is the perfect marriage of both of those. It's phenomenal. That's amazing. And I don't know how to do that. You know, I don't think any of us really know how to do that, but God knows how to do that. He knows how to be just and he knows how to be merciful. So here's the here's the most beautiful picture of justice and mercy. It's the cross. The reason I say that is the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. Now, that's the idea. Paul was very familiar with the law when he when he said that in Romans. He was very familiar with the idea that, you know, when one sinned, there was the penalty of death. That is part of Jewish law. You know, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So if, if desecrating the law or going against the law or breaking the law requires blood, it requires death, God is merciful in that he's saying, you know what? That really falls on your head, but I'm going to make a way so that that penalty is paid on your behalf. I'll die. I'll take the death upon myself, pay the penalty, and you can still live. Mm. So he's fulfilled the just requirements of the law. The law requires it. You, you have to have blood. And if you break God's law, there's no greater blood that you can offer than the blood of God. Right. So he's offering the sacrifice that is once and for all. It's, it's the supreme sacrifice. It's, it is the blood that covers and washes away. And not only does it cover and wash away, it, it pays for everybody. So now we can all experience and have eternal life if we want to respond to it. So justice has been met and mercy has been metered out. Mm in a very powerful uh, way that only God can do. Now, um, what you're talking about right now, about the justice of God and and redemption, basically, also mm-hmm. has to do with the Day of Atonement we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. This was a day that happened once a year. Uh, Jewish is called, or Hebrew, it's called Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And from what I understand, from what I've studied about this topic, is that um, they had to repent of their sins. Was it the day before or the day of they had to repent from their sins? Yeah. So this is this is a good transition because I wanted to talk about the services and and what they meant. So before we get to that, okay. let's let's cover the kind of the basic every day. Okay, so there were everyday services and there was there like were. a once a year bigger service. So every day there was a morning and evening sacrifice. Okay. And um, every day there were people giving individual offerings. And of course, there was the offering of incense that happened, you know, every day as well. The daily service. Um, so this consisted of morning and evening burnt offerings, the offering of sweet incense on the golden altar and the special offering of individual sins. And every morning and evening, a lamb of a year old was burned upon the altar. And this symbolized, really, um, their constant dependent, their, their constant dependence upon the atoning blood of Christ. And this had to be a spotless lamb, correct? Had to be like, spotless, no blemish. Spotless meaning no stains, no scuffs, no injuries. No injuries, yeah. yeah. It, it can't have a limp, it, Nothing like that, like just totally pure. Because Jesus blemish. was our perfect sacrifice. He was without sin. Yes. Had to represent a perfect sacrifice. So the individual offerings were from people in Israel that recognized their sin. They they brought a spotless sacrifice to the temple. They would confess their sins, kill the animal. The priest applied the blood on the altar. You know, we covered all this, transferred the sin from the individual to the animal. And when the animal is slain, the blood is brought into the holy place and the sin is now transferred, you could say, to the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. Now, and of course, we already talked about incense as well. Now, apart from the daily sacrifice, this is what you were you were talking about. There's the yearly service. And there's several components to this. So it happened one time a year. And for three days leading up to this, the people would spend time in repentance and confession and cleansing. They wash themselves, they cleanse themselves. And after those three days, then the high priest, he he takes off his usual garb and he dresses in a plain white, Bible calls it an ephod, um, plain white garment, plain white robe. Which, know. which again, reminds me of how Jesus is the pure white sacrifice. Like, he's, yeah. there's no blemish. Yes, no blemish. Uh, it's very different than what he usually wore. It, what he usually wore looked a lot more fancy, you know, very colorful gemstones, gold, you know, this kind of stuff. But this is plain. And I think not only does it represent Christ, it also represents how we are to come to Christ. Plain, just as we are nothing fancy we don't we can't bring anything you know we have nothing to offer and more than that um i don't want to get too far in the weeds but this is really a picture of christians in the last days you know there's no frills here mm -hmm. this is i think god is calling us to be very simple people very straightforward you know, not flashy, not showy, nothing to brag about. You know, we're just very plain, simple, humble people who want to follow God. So it's like we we understand, like you said, that we have nothing to offer. We understand mm -hmm. our human condition condition and say, 
Lord, what do I have to give? And he just says, I just want your heart. Yeah. And I will make you, wash you whiter than snow. Yep. Putting on, symbolically speaking, those white garments. Yep. That's amazing. Yep. So first, the high priest would offer a bull in sacrifice for his own son. Okay, so he's, he's covered. Then he would take two goats and present them to the Lord. And he would cast lots. And he would choose one of them to be killed in sacrifice. And the other one would be kept alive. And the one that was kept alive would be called the scapegoat. Okay. So then the high priest would sacrifice the Lord's goat along with a ram, take the blood of the bull, the ram, and the goat, and he would go in by himself into the most holy place. And there he would sprinkle the blood of the animals on the mercy seat. Okay. When that was done, he would come out, lay his hands on the head of the living goat, confess all the sins of the people of Israel. And then there was a man, and the Bible calls him a strong man, would be appointed to take the goat out into the wilderness to be the, let the go. scapegoat. The scapegoat. Okay. And there the goat would die outside the camp. Okay, so that's very strange, right? <laughs> my understanding is the scapegoat represents the devil. Is that correct? Was that was that correct or That's the way I understand it as well. Yeah. I don't know that every theologian interprets it that way. Okay. But I think it's there's an interesting nuance here. I think that a lot of people maybe aren't picking up on. And that is the scapegoat is not being slain. Okay? There's no blood. So the the scapegoat when it when he the high priest is confessing the sins on the goat. That goat because it's not being slain isn't pain for anything. Hmm. It is yeah. simply taking the blame. And then like dies in the desert. Like he's yeah. cast out, it so to speak. Yeah, it yeah. dies a, you know, a natural death. Yeah. It's not being slain. So if there's no blood from the scapegoat, the scapegoat is not providing any kind of atonement. It's essentially just saying, well, you know what? We're cleansing the sanctuary and all these sins that are built up in the sanctuary. They've been paid for. By Jesus? By Jesus. Mm -hmm. They've been paid for. But the sanctuary is being cleansed. Okay? So we're now we're saying, okay, well, these sins, there's a cause to them. We know Jesus wasn't the cause. You know, we make choices. We, we are sinful human beings. We can, we can be the cause. But there's an ultimate root cause to sin where, in this world, where, sin where sin originated. Where sin started, yeah. And that is with Satan. And so it's a way, I believe, of showing through the sanctuary that Jesus pays the sacrifice, but Satan takes the blame. He's the one to blame. So... I understand the scapegoat is representing Satan. Satan is taken out into the wilderness, dies, you know, and essentially is, you know, takes the blame for the sin problem. Which we understand is going to happen eventually where Satan is not going to be able to do this sin thing forever. 
But he is, in that sense, cast out away from everybody, away from mm-hmm. all human beings, away from the fallen angels, where he is going to be punished for his sin, separated, cast out, abandoned, yeah. uh, left to, to die. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this whole time, this Day of Atonement, this is essentially, take a, a big picture point of view, this is a time of cleansing and a time of judgment, Okay. It's a time where they, after everything is said and done, the people can be at one with God. It's essentially what atonement is trying to accomplish is being at one with God. At, at one moment, atonement yeah, at one moment. Yeah. That's an easy way to remember that. Yeah. <laughs> so they can be clean before God. I mean, it's a great, a great opportunity. It's a great feeling. It had to be a relief to them to know, yeah, okay, yeah, my sins have been completely wiped away. You know, there's nothing held against me. I'm right with God. God's right with me. We're all good. Even knowing that, you know, if I were an Israelite at the time, my sins are no longer even in a tabernacle. Like it's cleansed. It's done away with. It's disappeared. It's gone. Like Mm -hmm. God doesn't even remember because there's no visual or anything like that. God doesn't hold anything against me. Yep. It's all, it's all paid for. It's a beautiful picture. So, um, so yeah, the sanctuary has this is this story of salvation. It really is. And it was a, a living story of salvation for those who are participating in the services. And of course, now we can look back, we can study the sanctuary and we can see that picture, but they actually lived that picture. And that had to be a very interesting experience to go through. Um, lots of highs and lows, you know very much a low when you have to sacrifice the lamb yourself and confess and lead that lamb in while everybody's watching, but very much a high at the end when you know there's nothing between me and God and I've been forgiven. So that was a lot that we covered of the old tabernacle system. It's in the Old Testament and some people might say, okay, well, that was then amazing symbolism for the Israelites, something we can learn from. It's absolutely beautiful. And that's it, right? But we read, as you referred to earlier, uh, we read in the New Testament that there are many references made to the Old Tabernacle, Old Testament Tabernacle, and that there is supposedly a heavenly sanctuary, tabernacle, temple that's in existence. And I'm reading from Hebrews 8. Uh, starting at verse 3, where it says, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, with a capital O, also have something to offer. For if he, referring to Jesus, capital H, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy, this is interesting, the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he, capital H, said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he, again referring to Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch that he is also a mediator over better covenant, which was established on better promises. So, what it's saying here is that Moses was instructed by Jesus to make a tabernacle that was according to basically a blueprint Mm -hmm. of one that was in heaven. Yeah. 
that I mean, that's probably something not a lot of Christians read and understand, that it wasn't just a physical tabernacle in the Old Testament in the desert, but that there was a blueprint of one in heaven. Yeah, it's certainly not something we probably spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, but there's a lot of importance there if we're going to understand the fullness of what God is trying to do. So I'll read from Hebrews 9 because it it really augments what you were saying. This is verse 23 through 28. It says, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. What's he talking about? Blood, right? Mm -hmm. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So here the writer of Hebrews is recognizing, okay, we need a better sacrifice to purify the heavenly. That seems odd. Like what wait a minute, what the heavenly needs to be purified? Like Right, and purify like day of atonement. About in heaven needs to be purified. I right. thought it was a perfect place. So it says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true. Again, emphasizing this is a copy, right? The one on earth is a copy. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrificing of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. That's a lot. <laughs> that's it is a, a lot. very wordy piece, but that's how Paul writes sometimes, or actually pretty often. The, he has a lot of information packaged into a couple of verses. So, yeah. so how big would you picture, break this what's down? What's the whole point? The whole point is, like you said, what's on earth is a copy of what's in heaven. And here the, we're seeing that what happened on earth is also happening in heaven. So as we study the sanctuary and we see the pattern of what's going on, all we have to do is say, okay, if this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened, then that's happening there. In heaven. In heaven. Mm-hmm. We can kind of continue the story and see where we're at in the in the story of the sanctuary. And Jesus being in this story the high priest, but also But the also the sacrifice. sacrifice. Right. Because as we've seen in the sanctuary, so many different aspects pointed to Christ, whether it was the priest or the animal or whatever. So what we're really getting at is, like we said, what's done on earth was symbolic of what was in heaven. There's a sanctuary in heaven. And we even know there's other clues in the Bible, like Revelation 11 gives us a clue. It tells us that the Ark of His Testimony, Ark of the Covenant, is in heaven. The Ark of the Covenant was the box that we found in yeah. the most holy place. So, I mean, if there's a sanctuary in heaven and Jesus is going there to apply his blood, it shouldn't surprise us that other elements are there. 
It makes sense. In fact, if we look in the Revelation, we'll see other elements in there. We'll see golden candlesticks. Mm. We'll see altars. We'll see, you know, the ark. So these elements are there. The book of Revelation uses sanctuary language. So what we really want to get to is what's going on there and what's going on now, right? Right. How does it refer to our lives? Why should we know about this? Yeah. So let's follow the life of Jesus. We take a big picture approach to Jesus. He lived his life in the courtyard. So the courtyard, if you'll recall, had the altar of sacrifice and the labor. Um, That's essentially earth. Because Jesus came to this earth, he sacrificed himself on the cross, right? Mm -hmm. He spilt his blood. And he was also baptized for us, of course, before he died, but he was baptized for us. Um, Another way you can look at that in, in the history of events is after the blood of Christ was spilt, cleansing came to all believers. Yeah. And also thinking of, because I was just thinking, why was the altar before, in the courtyard before the the laver? But then like we accept the, uh, the sacrifice of Christ and then we get baptized and cleansed. Yeah. We're, we're really following. Yeah. It, it's kind of like this. Jesus came from heaven and, you know, participated in these things. He went from heaven to earth and now he's going back to heaven. But we're also on that journey of going to heaven. And so we've, there's a part of us that follows in that story as well. So yes, Jesus is sacrificed. We have to accept his sacrifice. And then, you know, there's the cleansing. Well, there's baptism and there's the Holy Spirit coming into the life. And then there's the bread that we need to be eating and the light and the prayer. And so we're making our way essentially like back through, to heaven. Through the through sanctuary. The sanctuary. Yeah, that's, that, that's so cool. Now, remember, the sanctuary cannot be entered without blood. Jesus shed his blood so it could be presented in the heavenly sanctuary. And we know when Jesus went to heaven, the Holy Spirit was poured out on all the disciples. But that's just the first apartment, right? There's another apartment to the sanctuary. And this is where the cleansing happened on earth. The high priest went in once a year to cleanse the sanctuary, to make atonement. And so if we know that that pattern happened on earth, we know that that pattern should happen in heaven. And we know it does from Bible prophecy. Okay. So we get a clue in the book of Daniel. Daniel's talking about this little horn power and all the terrible things that the little horn power does in Daniel chapter 8. And there's a lot of sanctuary language in that passage. You get to verse 14, and he says, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Okay. Seems like an odd statement. Um, If you read further in the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 8, we know that that is specifically referring to the time of the end. How do we know that, just for the listeners? if you open up to Daniel, chapter 8, we can show that. So go to Daniel, chapter 8, and it's after verse 14. And it says here in verse 17, So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Well, that's pretty straightforward. You can't can't go wrong with that. (laughs) So that's a clue that tells us those 2,300 days aren't literal days. But 
Yeah, yeah, because I was because just they would have already passed exactly. Yeah, and here we are thousands yeah. of years later. Yeah. Right? So, so how do we know what time he was actually referring to? I mean, the time of the end, but like, do we know like an exact date or something? Like yeah, that? we can actually figure that out. Okay. So, if we know that the twenty three hundred days is aren't, aren't actual days, then we have to use other tools in our Bible prophecy tool belt to figure out what those days are. The Bible, when you're interpreting Bible prophecy and you're talking about days, there is what's called the day-for-a-year principle. You can find that in Numbers 14.34 and Ezekiel 4.6. So these two texts basically tell us a day represents a year in Bible prophecy. So I have in front of me Numbers 14.34. It says, According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. Um, how, how is that? How can we find prophecy in that, that this is letting us explain it in prophecy? Well, this is a prophetic vision, okay? So when Daniel is receiving these visions, or Nebuchadnezzar is receiving a vision, we're seeing large spans of time go by, Okay. These are prophetic visions because God is letting Daniel know and Nebuchadnezzar know what's going to happen in the future. That's how we know that they're prophetic. Okay, So when he goes through the vision with Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is shown like the kingdoms that will exist from his time until the time of the end. So we know it's prophetic by that by the language that's being used in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, okay? All those chapters, even, yeah, chapter 11 as well. We know that it's prophetic by the language that's being used and the time markers in the prophecies that are given prior. And the Bible works on this principle called repeat and expand. So in Daniel 2, it gives a little bit of information, and then some of that information is repeated in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, and it's expanded upon. And then there's more information given in Daniel 9, and it's expanded upon. So we're kind of like peeling layers of an onion. Okay, these are really all related. Um, so we know that these 2300 days apply to prophetically to the time of the end. One, because the angel says so. Mm-hmm. Two, because the previous visions have all been the same way. They have referred to the time of the end, and we've been able to trace that through the kingdoms that in in Nebuchadnezzar's day hadn't happened yet. Yeah, but you, we know on this side of history have yeah, happened. We can look back in, his, in, in history and read our history books and realize, okay, this was actually for later time periods. Um, yes. But what about like the the verse we just read in Numbers and, and the other verse that you mentioned? Was it Ezekiel? Ezekiel 4.6. Yeah. How do we take that and say um, we can look at this and say oh this is telling us that we can use a day for a year principle in Bible prophecy. I'm just thinking about that. Well as you read it so let's go Uh to one. Um, Numbers 1434 right? So we're there it says according to the number of days that you spied out the land. Well how long did they spy out the land? They spied out the land 40 days. Mm -hmm. Okay. It says that 40 days. For each day you shall bear your guilt one year. So God is saying every day that you spied out the land, those 40 days, 40 years 
you will bear out your guilt. So God is the one instituting that principle here. And God is the one um, that really shows us we can use that. Generally in the Bible, you don't interpret something as prophetic unless the context doesn't give you a choice. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So in this context, we know that it's not going to be literal days because the angel says it's to the time of the end. And the time of the end is always at the end of time. Of course, we have the advantage of history now and knowing that, well, 2300 days, it didn't happen. Yeah. What, you know, what the angel was describing. So we can apply that principle here. Okay. So, so, so applying that principle, 2300 days, not literal days, just because it just didn't happen. Plus, we're in prophecy. We have to look at the future. We have to look at the time of the end, as the angel said. So it could not be literal days. It was years. Now, in what time frame was Daniel saying this so we can apply 2300 years and figure out when this was supposed to happen. This, yeah, the there's cleansing. a couple of things we have to take into account. One is, what is a Jewish year? This is the context he's speaking in. So a Jewish year is 360 days. It's okay. not 365 and a quarter or whatever we, 364 and a quarter, whatever we, we use here. It's 360 days. Okay, so that is a um, year, okay? So you go from there, and now 2,300 years, um, the couple other things we have to figure out is that there's no year zero. So we have to account for that okay. as we're counting forward. And when we're in BC, because we're in Daniel's time, the numbers count down. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to one, then the next one you're going to get to is one after that, but then you're counting up. Yeah. So it's like one BC and then it's like one. Skip the zero. Yeah. yeah skip the zero. Okay. Okay, so what time are we talking about? Well, this here doesn't necessarily tell us. We actually have to pull those clues from other parts in the Bible. So Daniel, he's receiving this vision and and getting an explanation, but he's not given the entire explanation. He, he, He doesn't fully understand here. And so later he's given more to help him understand. And we find that in Daniel chapter 9. And here's what it says. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make a reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Then it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. So you're like, okay, how does that help? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Daniel's actually given another prophecy. But this prophecy is part of the 2300-day prophecy. How do we know? Okay, so in Daniel 9.24, it uses this term um, where it says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. That word determined could just as easily be translated 
cut off. Okay. Okay. So if it's going to be cut off, it has to be cut off of something. Something, yeah. Contextually, the way the visions flow in Daniel 7, 8, and 9, we know that the angel is coming back to give further information to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. That was not explained in Daniel chapter 8. So the only other time period that's mentioned is the 2300 days. So this time period here has to be cut off from the 2300 days. Now, it's not cut off like it's at the end and chopped off and left hanging by itself. In other words, it's carved out from the 2300 days, but they have the same beginning. So it's part of the 2300 days, but after it runs its course, it's kind of cut off as its own segment out of that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So now, this time period in Daniel chapter 9, because we're given some clues in verse 25 about the sanctuary, which is to restore, well, not just the sanctuary, but to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. It says there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Now, this is the most complete picture of rebuilding Jerusalem that we understand. You know, it's if, if you're rebuilding the street and you're rebuilding the wall, this is like, yeah, we're going the right direction. This is complete. So now there are, I've heard as many as four um, decrees by Artaxerxes that were given to rebuild Jerusalem. Artaxerxes is king the of Persia. king of Persia. Yeah. It, when, and Daniel lived during his Medo-Persia. time. Medo-Persia. Yeah. yeah. So Artaxerxes gave, you know, as many as three to four. Okay. What we want to go with is the most complete one. How do we know which one is the most complete? We can actually find it in the Bible. It's actually in Ezra chapter 7. Okay. Okay. So if you look in Ezra chapter 7, you'll find the most complete uh, decree for rebuilding Jerusalem. Now, here's the nice thing that we can figure out from Ezra chapter 7. We know from history when that decree was given. It was given in the year 457 B.C., okay? We know from the Bible or just history? We know from the Bible and history that decree was given in 457 B.C. Now, another thing that we have to kind of factor into our thinking is spring and fall, okay? So that decree is given in 457 B.C., and if you go 2,300 years into the future, okay, you're going to arrive at a date, Okay, you're going to arrive at 1844. Okay. And it's going to be the fall of 1844 because the decree was given in the fall. So essentially in 1844, in the fall, that was the time that the sanctuary was to be cleansed, that that the cosmic Yom Kippur started. Because... And again, in Daniel, uh, what is it, uh, 8 verse 14, I think, it says, and unto 2,300 days, which we now understand is years, the sanctuary shall be cleansed. We have the starting date, which was, again, 457 BC. 457 BC. So if you add 2,300 years to that, you get to 1844, 1844. which 
as you explain it from the Bible, is when the heavenly sanctuary um, where Jesus is residing is was going to be cleansed from yeah. sin the way we see it in the Old Testament where there was a tabernacle that was once cleansed once a year. Yeah. So this is the one cleansing. I mean, that's just going to blow your mind when you think about that. Yeah. And, the, and it happened. We're in currently, as we're recording, 2022. That's many, many years ago. It is many years ago, but it's... You know, it's it it shows us that we're in one of the last phases of this whole process. Mm-hmm. So when that's done, when the cleansing's done, then the only thing that's left, according to the sanctuary service, is that the high priest has to cast lots between the two goats. Which means, again... Jesus sacrificing himself, the devil being cast out, destroyed together with the lot was cast on him, the guilt, a.k.a. the sin. Actually, I need to back up because they, they cast the lots before they go in. Okay, right. Yes, yes. They cast the lots before they go in because the, the the Lord's goat had to be slain and that blood Yeah, had to because be Jesus died before applied. 1844. Yeah. But the, the last component in this service is that the scapegoat has to be dealt with. Yeah. Right? So the priest can go in, they can cleanse the sanctuary, but now he's still got to hand the scapegoat over to a strong man that gets led out into the wilderness and then it dies. Of course, they confess the sins of the people on the scapegoat. So that's that's, that's really, if you're thinking about, okay, well, Jesus is in the most holy place. He's confessing sins. He's applying his blood to the, to the mercy seat. And then there's the scapegoat. So you think about it that way, there's there's not a lot of steps left before it's done, before judgment ends. Is that what this is? Can we consider it to be a judgment or how, how do we know that? It is a time of judgment. Yom Kippur was known as a time of judgment. That's why the people are confessing their sins. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Um because you had to be made right with God. You can't be made right without a pronouncement, a judgmental pronouncement that, yes, this is this is right. It's just like when a judge sits on a bench and makes that final determination, whether you're guilty or whether you're innocent. So this is essentially that judgment scene in heaven where Jesus is up there determining whether you're guilty or whether you're innocent. And and in the Old Testament uh, Yom Kippur service, the people who were not cleansing themselves, or three days in advance, like cleansing themselves physically, but also doing with their sin, they died, right? They couldn't survive? You know, I was trying to look that up prior, and I thought they were put outside of the camp. Okay, so it's not like they died. Don't but... know that they were executed. Right, yeah. <laughs> Um, I think they were put outside of the camp, but I was, I was trying to look for that and I couldn't find it really quickly. So we would have to kind of circle back to that and explore that. I don't, I don't want to necessarily say a hundred percent. My memory uh, does fail me at times. So, um, maybe another, another episode. Yeah. Yeah. We'll probably come back to this because this is a huge topic. So, okay. So Jesus is in the holy, holy place in or in the most holy place, sorry, in 1844. 
Mm-hmm. Um, how do we know that he is continually cleansing the sanctuary? He's still doing that because when you look at the Old Testament, uh, it was just one day and then it was done. It was one day and it was done. So, yeah. But uh, there were three days prior that people were, you know, confessing and repenting. And we don't see necessarily that same sequence now either. You know, it's that we are in that time of confession and repentance now. It's that Day of Atonement experience. So for us as human beings, this is our time and responsibility to be confessing our sins and being right before God as he makes his determination. There's nothing really that we can correlate as far as prophetic time and say, it's going to go this long, or we know it ends here, or whatever. I mean, Jesus himself said, no man knows the day or the hour when the right. Son of Man comes. Right. So we just know that it is, and we know that it will end. We and just we don't, don't know when. necessarily know what that cutoff is. I, I mean— I, We they, don't have a date for it. Yeah, it makes sense to me because if we just like we have a if we had a date for Jesus second coming which the bible says we can't know the the the, Don't the, hour, the day or the hour it's just, uh, and for me when i think of that i understand it as yeah if i knew oh 2 years from now jesus is going to come i could live my whole life and then last day like okay let me confess every everything and i'm going to go to heaven whereas and, and, and it's the same with, with the Day of Atonement or what Jesus is doing now in heaven. If I know, well, this is when the cleansing stops, I might have the same behavior. But if I have a continual behavior of, Lord, cleanse me, please, I want to be near you, I think that's a much more genuine kind of faith that I would have and yeah. genuine relationship with God instead of the other way around. Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, even if it did work that way, I think we're deceiving ourselves into thinking that God would accept that kind of uh, a life. You know, like, I'm going to ignore you for my whole life, but at the last second, yeah, I'll take you because that's my ticket to heaven. I don't know that that would work. I think God is more just than that, you know? Mm -hmm. And because think about it, you could have somebody who lives their entire life essentially righteously, if we want to put it that way. By the law. Screws up at the last and doesn't make it. Yeah. And then have somebody that goes, you know, an unrighteous life until the last second and then makes a confession and it's like good to go. I think God is more just than that. He looks at the whole life. Though yeah. there are people who on their deathbed obviously accept Jesus and God accepts it if they're genuine in their hearts. And, yeah. and only God knows, yeah. you know, if That's that why person he's a is converted judge. at that point. Yeah. Now, why is this topic so important? Why does it matter what Jesus is doing in a sanctuary right now? And and how should we relate to that in our lives today in 2022? Yeah. Why is it important for us now? Um, if we look at this sanctuary surface as a process, Jesus has already had his blood slain and he has already paid the penalty. But... What is our response to that? You know, have we accepted that? Is it, you know, when Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished, we really have to wonder, what's finished? What What is he talking about? Because if it was, if everything that was 
necessary to be done was done, why didn't he just come right back? It's mm, a good question. I think the sanctuary service provides an explanation. There's more to the process. So when he said it is finished, it makes sense that what he had finished was the sacrifice. You know, he paid the penalty. But the sanctuary service says, okay, we have collected the blood. We have gathered the blood. But now the blood has to be applied, right? And so in the sanctuary, the blood is applied. And he has, he is pleading that blood on our behalf to his father to make sure that it is enough. And we know, of course, that the father does accept that and says that it is enough. So what about, what about me? What about my life? You know, as you're saying, what does that mean for me? It's great that Jesus died for our sins. I mean, that's, that's an unfathomable gift. But there's another gift that Jesus wants to give us. When Jesus died for our sins, he never wanted to leave us in a sinful state. As we look toward heaven and we see what kind of place heaven is going to be, heaven is a, a place of eternal bliss, but heaven is also a place where there's no more tears, no more crying. It's a place where there's no more sin. Well, if it's a place where there's no more sin, then how do we get to that point? Because we're sinful human beings, and it seems like here on earth, that's all we keep defaulting to is one sin after another, right? Jesus said something else before he went to heaven. He said, all power has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. When Jesus is applying his blood on our behalf, we're in this time of confession and repentance, and we are really, we should really be desiring to be those people that are ready for heaven. So how does that happen? Well, I believe it happens with another gift. The other gift is something that we see a picture of in Job. Jesus wants to impart power in our lives to overcome sin. Okay? We don't do anything on our own. We don't have that capability. We've, we've essentially been damaged to our very core since sin happened. But Jesus is offering us the power to overcome here on this earth. And that's maybe a sticky wicket with some people. Like, no, I mean, we're going to be sinning till, till Jesus comes. Mm. Yeah, I hear some people say that. Maybe some people will. But I don't think Jesus died just to leave us in this state of misery, to perpetually sin until he comes. Because if he paid his blood, he didn't pay it to leave us that way. He paid it to transform us. And transformation means that we're going to become different beings entirely. 
there's a there's a, a theological concept I like to call uh, the theology of the beginning and the end. And I apply it to a lot of things, this, this being one of them. If you look at the beginning and you look at the end, you'll see many similarities. Before sin entered the world, of course, man was sinless. At the end, in heaven, man will be without sin. In the beginning, man was on a total plant-based whole foods diet. Pretty much vegan, yeah. In the end, it will be that way as well. Because it says in the Bible, they will not kill or destroy in all my holy mountain. This is talking about the last days or heaven? In heaven. Okay. In, um, in the beginning, man was worshiping on the Sabbath day. And in the end, we see that as well. So there's many things about the beginning and the end we can, we can see. Okay, they're, they're similar. Well, we also have this space in between. This space in between... I believe, is a training ground and a preparatory ground to get to that place again. The goal is to be transformed, to be those kind of people again. So if we kind of throw our hands up in the air while we're here on this earth and say, that's not possible, we're really limiting the power of God. And we're really saying the devil has more power over our lives than God does. This is a very dangerous thought to think. It is a dangerous thought to think. And why do we want to concede and spend our lives in misery making the same mistake over and over again? That's a miserable existence. And it's a hopeless existence to think that I'll never be able to stop looking at pornography. I'll never be able to stop hitting people. I'll never be able to stop drinking. I'll never be able to stop being critical of others, whatever it is, that's a miserable existence. And it's not the existence that Jesus wants for you. Jesus wants to transform you. We go back to that creative power. God spoke and it happened. There is creative power in his life. When you are, when you become a Christian, you accept Jesus, you know, sacrifice into your life. When you're baptized, you receive the Holy Spirit. And That is a cleansing. It is a washing away. It is a chance for us to become, as the Bible says, a new creation. Old things are washed away. Behold, I have made all things new. If you're new and you're fueled and transformed by the power of Christ, why do things have to be the status quo? You know, they can be Mm -hmm. completely different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what is Jesus waiting on? You know, if if it's like you said, if if all if Jesus's sacrifice was it and that was enough, why are we still here? Well, I believe we're still here because Jesus is waiting on his people. He wants to cleanse us. He wants to do the same thing in us. Mm, wow. And if we in in one respect, it's kind of up to us. Are we going to let him? Yeah. You we know, have we choice. have a choice in all of that. We can we can let him or we can't. But getting back to Job, you know, the Bible says Job went through these horrible experiences. But it also says in in all that Job uh, said, he said not. That's incredible. You know, the devil threw everything at him. And the Bible says he didn't sin. 
That's insane. Like, I, I just can't imagine being in his position and not, not sin. <laughs> yeah. He was a just and upright man in the eyes of God. Did Job do it on his own? I don't think so. Absolutely not. Oh. I don't think I don't think any of us can. We we can't do that. We can only do it by the power of Christ. We can only do it with his spirit dwelling in us. We have to be constantly surrendered to Jesus. But I believe that's what he's waiting for. He's waiting for a group of people who will do what he did and be completely reliant on the Father for everything. So I think that's why we're still here. And um, that's why this message is important. It, it's really imparting that second gift, not just the gift of salvation, but the gift of sanctification. And there's a third gift coming. Salvation? No. I mean, we've received the gift of salvation. That's, that's true, yeah. Or justification, you might say. And we're receiving the gift of sanctification, which is, you know, continually living that justified experience. But we're going to receive another gift when Jesus comes. And that's the gift of glorification. Mm. And in that glorification, all it does is transform our bodies. It doesn't transform who we are. We should already be, through the sanctification process, who we're going to be in Christ. And then we will continue that experience with glorified bodies throughout eternity. So... The sanctuary, you know, when Jesus came to this earth, that was the first gift. And he's got two more waiting for us. All we have to do is say yes. Yeah. Comply, right? Let him into our lives. Let him transform us. And let him do the work that we cannot do. I am Danique Tursmet, and you are listening to the Little Light Studios podcast. If you like our show, make sure to leave us a comment and a five-star review. Also, make sure to check out our YouTube show, Video Bible Study, in which we seek to answer a Bible question in five minutes or less. And don't forget to give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter. We would love to hear from you.